Hey, guess what, folks? What's that, Alex? Disrupt Berlin is right around the corner, and we have a deal for you. 15% off if you use the promo code EQUITY. A ticket gets you access to the amazing content we have in store on stage. Investors and founders, including Magnus Olsen, Daniel Ramat, Sonali DeRiker, Aileen Sarah, and Jamie Burke will grace the stage in just a few of the many exciting panels that will cover the startup landscape in Europe and beyond. You'll also be able to watch our premier startup competition, Startup Battlefield, visit Startup Alley, and attend our Q&A sessions, which are more intimate panel discussions with subject matter experts. Exciting, right? Very exciting. Disrupt Berlin runs November 29th and 30th, so get to techwrench.com slash disruptberlin and use the promo code equity at checkout for 15% off. We'll see you there. If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at sharespost.com. Hello and welcome to Equity. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am the editor-in-chief of Crunchbase News. With me this week is TechCrunch's Connie Loises. Hello, Connie. Hello, Alex. And we also have TechCrunch's Danny Crichton on the phone. Danny, what's up? Hey. And uh, critically, our guest this week is Tony Conrad, a partner and member of the founding team at True Ventures. Tony, thank you for being here. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Also the best dressed guest in so long. <laughs> the man is wearing a scarf and it actually works. Well done. <laughs> I Tony always looks well put together. The rest of us, I can't no do scarf, positive marks No life. Well, okay. I'm and just a white saying. scarf, no less. A white scarf, <laughs> no less. Takes a lot of courage. You need like a small British sports car now, I feel. Like, I, just I, to look I, fancy I, in the countryside. Uh, no comment. <laughs> I will there is one in the parking lot. He's not going to talk. Uh, no, it's scooters only. Come on, Connor. Scooters. It's all about scooters. <laughs> Anyways, it's my job to segue us into the first thing, which is actually less funny. It's about SoftBank and debt. And this has kind of been Danny's hobby horse. So, Dane, I'm going to let you walk us into it. Well, certainly. So, obviously, we've talked this, – this podcast is essentially a podcast about SoftBank in many ways, <laughs> given all the rounds that they've been doing. So, I decided to really kind of go in depth uh, with my partner, Armand Tabatabai. And what we found is um, SoftBank is addicted to debt. So, at, at the corporate group level, the company's taken on $160 billion in debt, uh, which is more than all the debt for Pakistan combined. But what's crazy is that in the venture uh, and the vision fund itself, the venture fund uh, that that's in the news constantly is also taken on a lot of debt. So already it has taken about five point six billion dollars out of the ninety eight billion um, that it invests. And now it has demanded an additional nine billion from the banks that are underwriting its IPO for the Japanese telecom unit. And so what's unusual here and I think what's interesting to discuss is that most venture funds do not take on debt to leverage returns. Uh, this is common in private equity. It's common in hedge funds. Uh, it's called gearing in, in, in Europe. It's called leverage here. Uh, but in venture where startups are much more risky, usually don't take on debt to try to lever those up. Um, the vision fund seems to be unique in that regard. So I was wondering so, what we all I, thought about. Yeah. So just to clarify, so the, the vision fund itself has taken on $14.6 in debt, not SoftBank, the corporation as a whole. That's right. That's right. It separately has 160 billion, which is crazy. That's so, a lot of so what, what are they doing with this money? You said to uh, increase leverage. Are they doubling down on prior bets they'd already made with this money? Is that the goal of the extra capital? I think the understanding is is that it's mixed into the capital, right? So when they make an investment, uh, you know, a percentage of that is coming from the the bonds that they've sort of taken in under the the vision fund label. 
Okay, that's fascinating. Now, does True Ventures have uh, $14.6 billion in debt, or are you guys going a little bit lighter on the leverage side of things? <laughs> Maybe my partner's John and Phil, but definitely not true. Okay, good. I'm, I, I'm glad you hear that. Because I'm with Danny. I haven't seen uh, anything like these numbers before, but I'm kind of loath to say that because all of SoftBank's vision fund numbers seem new to me. Like, I've never well, seen numbers at this scale. I, yeah, I think we're seeing we're seeing the the glow of China. I mean, I know SoftBank not being in China, but like we're definitely seeing the glow of the scale of China and all of these deals, right? Where you, you know, we're going to talk about coffee. I think a little bit later here, and you know, five hundred million dollars going into a company, you know, just really quickly. It's like amazing. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's, that's just, that's a reflection of China. So the Let's, scale of the Chinese opportunity then drives the increase in the size of capital absolutely. required. Or, or, well, the way you think about it. Right. Well, no, but I was going to say, um, I, I think this is sort of, I mean, I, I think there've been sort of like dribs and drabs about its uh, sort of appetite for debt here and there. But I think um, because SoftBank is sort of at the forefront right now, you know, Danny did a deep dive, the Wall Street Journal did a deep dive. Um, and when the journal talked to Masa-san, he kind of wanted to come out and address the firm's sort of stance on its biggest LP uh, and why it's going to continue moving forward with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but it he didn't shy away from the fact that they're raising debt. And he said, look, we've got, you know, the returns to sort of support this kind of risk taking. But I'm just sort of trying to figure out what returns he's talking about. There, there certainly have had some. I'm just in my mind trying to sort of think about some of them. So I know that they invested $4 billion in the uh, U.S. chip maker NVIDIA last yes. year. Uh, they bought $4 billion stake in the company. Let's say that's up 70%. That's like a $2.8 billion return in a year's time, which is not too shabby. That's not, I'm not going to like cry about that. I'll take the 2.8 billion. <laughs> right, right, right. a single trade. And Go then ahead. another is Flipkart. Yes. So Flipkart was a really fast, great return for them. They bought a 20% stake in the company for $2.5 billion um, last summer in August. And then uh, whenever Flipkart sold to Walgreens, I'm sorry, Walmart, <laughs> sorry, excuse me. That was an amazing slip. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier this year, uh, Masa, I don't think it was ever revealed exactly what it got for its stake, but it sold that stake. And I, he'd said at the time that it was worth about $4 billion. So let's say that's another quick $1.5 billion in SoftBank's pocket. But so that was still, is that sort of rationalized, you know, I, I mean, is there is there another big return that I could be missing? Have you... Not that comes to mind, but they hadn't deployed all the capital yet. So we're not looking at three to four billion in returns against the full 98 or 93, whatever it was. It's a smaller number. So the actual growth is pretty good. But they probably have a lot of other paper returns that they're telling people about that are their LPs. Right. And that may be driving the interest. Uh, because, you know, if everything else is marked up 20, 30, 40%, <laughs> you look like a genius. If you can move that amount of, of growth, even if it's on paper in that amount of time, you look great. But do you get to mark it up yourself and then call it a... <laughs> This you is when I, mean? I, would, I would no. call my accountant. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the answer to that is yes. But Danny, uh, before the show, we were looking through your story and there's a great quote. And it says um, that around 60% of the money promised to the Vision Fund comes with a 7% fixed return. And we're kind of curious, is that a, a return that is charged against all the capital that has been called? Or is that all the capital that has been committed verbally to the Vision Fund? So this, this comes from the uh, the Wall Street Journal story um, that focuses in on the actual LP capital. So not the, the debt capital, but the LP capital, which itself is structured in a debt-like format. So to be clear, every year, I, I believe it's across all the capital, not just called capital. Uh, certainly, I think they can sort of prioritize which capital they're taking. Um, so every year, they get kind of compounded at a 7% guaranteed return on that money. So it's it's much more of a structured finance sort of arrangement from the LP side rather than sort of a classic venture fund. 
Uh, and again, I think this is something that maybe is more common at the mezzanine capital than I'm familiar with at the early stage. But um, coming from a Series A kind of background, I, this is just completely new territory to me, for me. Well, and also, you know, we we credit, I think, duly. I mean, SoftBank, Masayoshi Sons made some great bets in the past. But, you know, like if things change, you know, they're dealing one of their biggest LPs is this monarchy. If they say, you know what, I'm not doing this after all. And that capital that I said I was going to commit, I'm not committing. And meanwhile, they have all this debt. I mean, it's certainly a precarious position, to say the least. You know, debt's a great thing in certainty, Mm -hmm. right? Right. And in this moment, there's a lot of certainty. But, you know, 12 months from now, six months from now, six minutes from now, there may be a lot less. And, (laughs) you know, debt's crushing in those moments. You know, like when we think about early stage companies and when they come to us with these requests for debt, Mm -hmm. right, we're like, well, okay. I mean, what kind of certainty do we have in the business? Mm-hmm. If you're Blue Bottle or Peloton, absolutely. It's a great, you know, very efficient, capital efficient way to fund your business. But if you're a startup and you don't have that certainty at some point in time, it'll turn against you, right? right? And it'll crush you. Right. And um, so, you know, this market feels like a certain, a bit of a mm-hmm. certainty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we all know that that's not going to last forever, Right. right. Yeah, but one thing Danny brought up is that SoftBank builds in a lot of, uh, well, we always hear that SoftBank builds in a lot of downside protection to its investments. So they may be a little bit more protected than we think. I thought so when I didn't know they were so levered. Now that I know they've leveraged on the other side of that kind of equation, it feels more precarious to me once again. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I can't imagine right now deploying the capital they are this late into a bull cycle uh, when the markets already appear a bit fragile. It's, uh, it's audacious. It's courageous. Courageous is a word. Remember when Apple removed the headphone jack and they said it was courageous or whatever? And we all found them for like six months. I'm now, a venture capitalist. I find I find a little bit better words. No, no, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm all about bringing it back now. Um, we we should scoot along because we shouldn't talk about SoftBank the entire show. I'm sure someone out there doesn't want to hear about it. Um, this this last week they brought a very interesting acquisition. We wanted to touch on. Um, Scooters. Sorry, everyone, for hitting on this topic again. We're going to be scooting along. We're going to. Oh, that's right. I made a pun. Uh, we're going to be quick. So, Ford, a car company you've probably heard of, uh, bought Spin, a scooter company you might not have. Now, Lime and Bird are the most famous scooter companies, uh, at least here in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in the East Coast half the time, and in the small city that I live in, they're all there. It's, it's quite fun. Uh, but Ford has bought Spin for a deal that people had a hard time nailing down the price. The first number that came out was 40. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen 80 to 90 from Fortune. I've seen 100. I think I even saw someone say 200. Um, we could be conflating acquisition price with earnouts. I don't really know. Let's call it 100 for the sake of this conversation. Okay. So a, a moderately, <laughs> oh uh, I mean, it's close enough. Right. Um, Spin had raised $8 million, um, back in May of 2017, and they probably were out of money. And I was telling Tony my theory before the show. So here's how I think. May 17, roughly 18 months ago, give or take, that's roughly the cadence at which a company on a venture program kind of raises. And they, this company, Spin, was uh, supposed to have done a large secure token offering, which is like an ICO, but I think a little bit less fraudulent. And it turns out that that didn't actually execute. So probably my guess is they spent their $8 million and they were in a bit of a market moment and they decided to sell instead. I still think it's really interesting that they were going to do this sort of token offering in the first place. I mean, scooters are so hot. Uh, they did sort of seem like an also ran, but that's partly because of their funding situation. I wonder why they weren't able to raise more funding or if they just 
maybe wanted an easy exit. Maybe they didn't want to be in this business, uh, you know, forever. I mean, Tony, don't you think it's kind of strange? I think it's a bit strange. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's strange at all, though, that they sold. You know, if you have a founding team sure. that's raised only eight million dollars in capital, and, and the numbers are true, right. if it's a hundred million dollar exit, that's a phenomenal outcome for a very short period of time mm-hmm. for founders right. and a team, right, and probably their investors as well. Right. So um, that I don't find, you know, odd at all. Um, number three player in a marketplace that's, you know, totally white hot, that's incredibly young. We all forget this is a, I think this is like a 15 month old or maybe 18 month old marketplace, Right. right? So this is not something that's been, you know, you know, just dredging along here for four or five years, and now there's a third place entrant. <laughs> there's true. a lot to happen. Absolutely. Right? I mean, you you founded a couple of companies in your career, and we'd had talks um, years ago about you know not raising too much money for so that That's you right. have options, so that you can sell and you don't have to kill yourself and try to sell for you know three x you know more money than you perhaps should have should have raised. But in this case, it's just sort of a little bit baffling to me why, again, given that it's such a nascent state, nascent opportunity, and given that it did have a lot of brand recognition, why it didn't. Yeah, the, the failed ICO, if that's true, you know, that's that's above my punching weight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something I was <laughs> I was really watching or cared to right. watch. But as a company and getting funding, um, I think it makes total sense after an $8 million raise that they would go look at some strategics, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in a marketplace like this. It's just really loading up on capital, right? Yes, and ambition. You can't fight that. Yeah, you got to You got to have muscle. And, you know, for Ford or any big company like that, when you think if you really take a step back, mm-hmm. zoom that lens out, this is nothing. This is this is oh, this absolutely. is peanuts for them, right, right, to hedge against losing, you know, an automobile market, which over time, they got to be looking at the same trends all of us are. Urban environments, car sharing, you know, there's there's just so many options. You know, they got to be worried, right? And they got to hedge their bets. And I wonder if it was a competitive deal. I mean, so- Probably not. Well, I would, so, all right. So Spin, let's say, was maybe running out of money if it didn't raise follow-on funding. Um, But it was also- Presumably, who knows what it was? Maybe it was 100 million, maybe it was 40 million, maybe it was 80 million, but it was affordable. So I'm just kind of wondering who else may have been sniffing yeah, around? Yeah. Well, if they uh, weren't, why not? Well, but you know how that happens often, you know? So they go and you're working on partnerships because mm-hmm. that's what you should be doing, mm-hmm. right? To muscle up. Um, and be strategic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in those conversations, because you're going to be raising around, mm-hmm. um, often the the partner would like to put a few nickels in, mm-hmm. right, just to have information rights sure. and to be along and kind of kind of be along for the journey. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing you know, it evolves into a conversation of full acquisition um, because they're so enamored to make the, to make the investment. Right, right, right. You're right. Happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Hey, everyone. Don't forget, this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. But there's more to the story that I want to kind of bring up because uh, Ford, if you remember back in 2016, bought uh, Chariot, if mm-hmm. I recall correctly. That's mm-hmm. right. Chariot was this right. uh, attempt at building a new bus for millennials, for lack of a better term. I still see them. Yeah, no, I they're, still, still, they're still operating. Mm-hmm. But Ford made an investment into kind of the next gen urban mobility space mm-hmm. years ago. So mm-hmm. to see them active now, not a huge surprise. Also, we've seen smaller dollar deals in the micromobility space. Uber bought Jump Bike, I think it was April of this year. If that's wrong, shout at me. Um, And my team had gone back through Ford's acquisitions, and this is the year they've been the most active. So they've been kind of increasing their cadence of purchases. Mm -hmm. So they may have actually, I mean, we're talking about them being scared and running out of money. Maybe Ford swooped in and said, we'll take it because now they have a really cheap way that they can just 
use their capital to grow a company in the space instead mm-hmm. of using their capital to buy a company in the space that mm-hmm. might be overpriced. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot here that kind of makes sense, but I just didn't think Ford was going to show up on the show. You know, like, <laughs> so I, I had to go look up the CEO's name. I didn't know. It. I didn't. I didn't know how they were doing. I. It's. It's terrifying how how siloed our knowledge is when we talk about um, on equity. Um, so it's, one car company, Tesla. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. Uh, exactly. Is there any other or Neo? Yeah. Uh, we we talked right. about the two car companies that don't make money. Not. Oh no, Tesla does make money now. I can't. Yes, they mo- do. Oh, wow. Profitable. That, right. that entire quarter. We'll see next quarter. <laughs> yeah, we get one quarter. <laughs> Look, hey, they did it and no one no one thought they were going to. So points to Tesla. Now, I want to move off from scooters if we're okay with that, because I feel like between that and SoftBank, it's been half of our show for the last (laughs) three months. So sorry, everybody. Just a really interesting, important deal in the space. Um, But we're going to take the the dollar amounts and ratchet them up and we're going to switch to uh, beverages, which is more of my jam. So... um, he, he, is this the mixology segment? This is this is the large ice cube and florals section. Uh, if you're a Jen fan, um, who who's heard of Luck and Coffee now? So I've heard of Luck and Coffee. Connie, have you heard of it? I read about today? it. No, I read about it this week. Okay, and then, uh, absolutely. And, I have not. It's less than a year old. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Luck and Coffee, if you don't know, is a Chinese coffee chain, which I think is fair, with a strong mobile ordering focus. That's so right. akin to how Starbucks now is very popular on the mobile front, Luck and Coffee has kind of rode that way from the beginning. And it has been a fundraising titan. So earlier this year, it came on my radar because it raised $200 million at a billion-dollar valuation. Back to our earlier theme. You're seeing right here, the long time in the making, you're seeing the ambition of Chinese scale right here. This is a great example. This is a less than a year old company that's going to go from zero to 600, 700 units. That is extraordinary. You mean stores, right? Sto- that's right. No, actually, yeah. um, it's already opened more than 1,400. Over 1,400. Accor- okay, to Reuters, I'm a little outdated. <laughs> 21 cities. Isn't that remarkable? That is remarkable, right? And so anyone. I want you to think about that. Yeah. Remarkable that's... or totally bonkers because they raised $200 million earlier this summer. The new news, that's old hat now, guys. The new news is they're raising either well, between 100 to $300 million more at a $1.5 to $2 billion valuation, according to Reuters earlier this week. So forget that last $200 million. That's like so <laughs> four months ago. Mm-hmm. They need nine figures more to build more coffee spots. Well, well, the valuation, I guess, doesn't change that much. You know, if they're raising two or $300 million more and then it's- It goes like to 1.5. Sli- it's right, mostly right, right. just new. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, more yeah Starbucks has 4,000 units. So let's think about it in that context. So they're almost, that's right, since 1989. So you're talking about 40% of the units, if your number's correct, mm. 40% of the units of Starbucks in, in less than, than one a, year. Right, right, right. Well, so, okay, just to be clear, what I read was 1,400 uh, stores from Luckin, 3,400 from Starbucks. In and China. It was not, and, and it started in, China. in 1989. Not, and I'm only being clear because people will bitch about it afterward. <laughs> Do we, what, did Connor make a swear? <laughs> I mean, oh, Listen, what's a decade? <laughs> we're we're going to bleep that age, one. That's a big deal. I don't think we're going to bleep it. I think we're going to keep it. I think we keep, I think that's but, a but gift. But it does, Starbucks does plan to um, have 6,000 stores by 2022, which is around the corner. Uh, I'm not really sure what Luckin has in mind, but obviously it's- I mean, they have a lot more. If they've already had right. 1,400 and they just picked up, you know, essentially 2X their well, prior capital base. Yeah, I think it's interesting because as you know, I, I know a little bit about the coffee space, having been on the board of Blue Bottle and a lead investor there. And- 
very much our analysis of the market was that there was room for a a massive player, mm-hmm. a massive brand, but that was artisanal based, and so different, right? So we were playing on quality and right. uh, consumer experience and how we treated our baristas and our team, and you know the spaces that you had. We were trying to be you know top shelf on every single one of those variables. Right. Luckin's coming in saying, "Hey, we're just going to compete with Starbucks, but we're going to do it." In a much more intelligent way, we're going to build it from a technology perspective, yes. mm-hmm. from an app perspective. We're going to we're going to you know empower delivery because we know that's the other big trend that's happening right. in the world, right? And so you know we just think we can do this better, more capital efficient. We got ties. We understand the nuances of the market at a level that they don't. We can act faster. That certainly is true so far. We don't know if they're acting in a way that makes any sense. We have no idea <laughs> if, true, if you, you know what I mean. We're right. not we're not looking. At at the integrity of their PL here, right? You know, so I so tried to margins. Yeah. So that's what a great segue. You can come, you can come on the show every week. Um, I was trying to figure out why this company is attracting kind of traditional Chinese venture capital when it is a coffee company. Admittedly, growth is an enormous part of that and also the technology component for sure. But I was going through Starbucks's most recent um quarterly report. And the margins are not exactly software level. No, their they're operating not margins level. are fifteen percent, and their profit margins a little bit less. And they spend seventy percent of their revenue on cost of revenue, and also what are called quote store operating expenses. Mm-hmm. So there's not endless fat you can cut there. Mm-hmm. This is not going to generate cash flow like SaaS, but. Starbucks is profitable and SaaS isn't. So there's another flip side to that. Well, I think you also look at the market cap, all right, of Starbucks, which I think is in the eighty billion dollar range. I'm I haven't up. looked at it in a month or two, but ninety three billion dollars. And I think they have about twenty thousand units everywhere else in the world outside of China. So we're talking about twenty what about fifteen percent of their units right now? Sure. Right. So just it's take fifteen percent of their market cap. Mm-hmm. You know, last time I checked that'd be about thirteen and a half. Thirteen and a half billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Wow. For a startup, that's a big play. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what, the, you know, once again, I go back to, you know, this to me is like, like, a, oh, you know? yeah, right, <laughs> it's right. like when Yuri Milner came yeah. in, it was like, I'm like, what, what are they doing? Right, you right. know, here, like in China, they're playing a very different ambition, different scale. And this is about Asia Pacific, by the way, this is not just about China. It's about Asia Pacific. It's a much bigger play, right? The thing that pe- I lived out in Indonesia for four years. And the thing that I learned in each one of these countries, the Chinese might represent, call it four to 5% of the population, but they control up to 80% of the GMP in every single one of these countries. So when you think about Chinese influence and how those brands will spread, it's, it's, oh, this is an Asian Pacific play, not yeah. just a Chinese play. So your point is Luckin Coffee will eventually break forth from the confines of the Chinese national borders and follow Chinese influence around yeah. the back. Yeah, this is, about Asia, this, is about, this is about Starbucks Asian Pacific business. This is not about their – this is – primarily today about their their Chinese business, but this is a bigger play. I love that this happened, though, because I paid zero attention to the coffee market in China. And and what I learned, and you may know, Tony, because you travel internationally all the time, is that you know, it's coffee is very new to Chinese consumers. I mean, they drink much more tea. Um, I think I read something like, uh, I don't know, a very small percentage of young people are drinking coffee. But what they are doing, they see it as a luxury. They sort of reward themselves with, um, they, they spend more per sort of beverage, I guess, than American consumers tend to do. 
uh, but uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if they sort of end up competing on price. So like, apparently with Luckin. Well, they are competing on price. They're 30% cheaper right now. Than Starbucks. Luckin, yes. yeah. And, yeah, and so Luckin. Starbucks, because its, it's in-store sales apparently are slipping, probably because of pressure from Luckin. Um, so it's it's uh, instead of cutting its prices further, it actually just increased prices there, I guess, to cover some of its, you know, the cost that Alex was talking about. Or maybe about. to create a bigger differential. Right. You know, from a brand maybe. perspective. I mean, like right. 30% exists. is too close. Okay. You know, yeah. if you're the premium offering, you don't want to have a price that's only 15% higher or 30%. You play yeah. one fifty exactly. Yeah. But the, so. the but the market opportunity is really big. Um, according to Bloomberg, uh, it's projected to grow by 32% to 79.4 billion by tw- 2022. Jeez. Uh, so it's it's huge. Um, yeah, as people sort of adopt this. Well, that is not the uh, the last time we're going to talk about the Chinese coffee market on this show. But this reminds me of that hot pot IPO we just talked about the other month. You know, Alex, I mean, we talked about this, I think, what, what, a month or two ago, that uh, Heidi Lau, which was a a billion-dollar offering on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is a hot pot chain in China. And so I think in a very similar story to Luckin Coffee, you know, this company's only been around a few years. It's grown to hundreds of stores, um, and it it debuted with a, a huge valuation. And so I think... You know, much as Tony has brought up a couple of times here, like this, this scale in the Chinese market and, and most importantly, the speed of growth. You know, you look at Sweet Green, you look at Blue Bottle or going back even like a Shake Shack, you know, it takes a very long time in the American market to grow to scale in the food and beverage sector. But in China, you can do this in, in such a rapid short period of time. I, I want to, before we leave the Blue Bottle thing behind entirely, point out my my recurring beef with the, the store. I know this is a bit <laughs> off topic, but we have we have an investor in the studio. So so here's my thing. Uh, I drink espresso because I've moved on from coffee because I'm not a child. I mean, we just had our childish things as we grow up. And I like to have my espresso iced. Now, this is controversial in the coffee space because some people think that if you put ice in your espresso, you dampen the flavor and actually kind of ruin it. It's a bit like the jerks who won't put ice in their whiskey because they're just pretentious. <laughs> Anyways, whenever I'm at a blue bottle, I have to order like, can I get a double espresso and a cup of ice and make it myself because they don't want to put the ice in for me. This is also a problem at Mazarine on Market Street and here at SF. Anyways, it's annoying. I just want to give you money for ice in my espresso, not do it myself. <laughs> That's my complaint. Well. What makes Blue Bottle so great is that they have a point of view about what coffee should be, right? And they've really spent a lot of time thinking about that. They think about how ice dilutes the flavor. And, you know, hence for years, we wouldn't even um, enable you or empower you to have an espresso drink in a to-go cup because we felt that you should consume it in a porcelain cup on-premise at a specific temperature, which yielded the highest (laughs) optimal flavor, right? So. Over time, you have to be flexible about a lot of different things. But um, you putting coffee in your ice, you know, oh, uh, you could do that I on your own time. I think how they mock you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I didn't think I was going to. By the way, I no longer have a financial affiliation with Blue Bottle, nor <laughs> okay. am I on their board. So James Freeman, Brian Meehan, and everybody else who's still there, <laughs> just a point of view from an individual right, 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 right. coffee yes, drinker. Yes, we should point out that Blue Bottle was acquired by Nestle, right? Was that That's this year right. or last year? Uh, that was last year. Okay. A year I ago this last month. It's very lonely when you're correct. Um, But (laughs) moving on, there has been a a movement in the stock market that we want to touch before we take off for the day. Uh, We've covered a lot of IPOs this year, and there's been some kind of behind-the-scenes action that we want to need to get uh, into your ears. So, Connie, what's going on? Yeah, props to the Wall Street Journal, which reported this weekend that as all of these sort of IPOs are performing well, a lot of the tech companies um, have been returning to sell more stock at a nearly unprecedented clip. So about 44% of the so-called follow-on stock offerings from U.S. 
U.S. tech companies uh, in the last 10 months have come within 180 days of an IPO. Wow. Now, I think, so there's a difference between dilutive and non-diluted secondary offerings. Non-dilutive is when you have like major shareholders like the VCs who take these companies public and they sell their shares. Dilutive is when more shares are offered. I think based on the story that they're saying that more shares are being offered to the public, which isn't really shocking because these are really... I think by historical standards, very small floats. I think these companies are, you know, the, the less you offer, the higher the demand for the shares. So I think, anyway, it's sort of interesting to think, like, are these VCs were bailing out, uh, you know, at the market top or are these just offerings to sort of allow in more investors who have a huge appetite in, for these? But the initial offerings are down. They're small. I mean, not down the, 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 in number, right, the, but the size yeah, of the, 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 right, size right, of the right. float. They're like yeah. 16, 17, well, 18 I mean. percent, they're, right? They're limited, right, to drive up Which demand. Which is less is than normal. Sure, right. Well, everyone thinks they can just go raise another billion from the vision fund. So why sell more of your stocks in the offering? <laughs> or hold the secondary. But if all of a sudden you have this enormous mm-hmm. pop and people are saying you may have left money on the table, why not go offer another 5, 10 million shares at this new, fresh, awesome valuation mm-hmm. that you have? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you have more capital in the uh, in the bank heading into a more uncertain market period, right. which I will keep repeating until I'm right. <laughs> It'll happen. It will happen. And think about it. Some of your private company competitors are raising bigger amounts of money. Yeah. Have yeah. you thought about that? Right, right, right. right. I Absolutely. mean, it's quite extraordinary. Well, people used to say that, you know, an IPO isn't an exit. It's the start of a journey as a public company. <laughs> but it's still a financing event that brings capital into the business most of the time, unless you're doing all, you know, extant shareholder sales. But I mean, it does put more capital on your on your account. Right. And most companies want that because every time we have this show, someone else has raised a kajillion dollars <laughs> and is trying to kill everyone else. Right. So to me, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I think this could also encourage more companies to go public before the window closes, uh, which will make my job more interesting. <laughs> and I think that's a good thing. So that's my entire perspective. You know, there's 100, I think there's 175 companies have gone public this past year. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, the newest- Versus was, 75 four years ago. Is that right? 50 of them are tech companies, which is still a lot. Oops, and half of them are hot pot companies in China. <laughs> Only half are hot pot companies 70, in China. 70, I think over 75% of them are actually companies in China. Yeah. Uh, they've had more offerings than U.S.-based companies, yeah. which is pretty amazing. And uh, there will be more of that coming down the pike. But for today, we have to tie it off. So thank you all for coming in. Tony, thank you for being our guest. Oh, it was so good to talk coffee with you. <laughs> and we will be back in seven days. Stay cool. Bye, everyone. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Connie Loizos, our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, And we will see you all right here next week.